Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. You know, Judy and I met at a summer healthcare summit, and Judy was the keynote speaker for a panel. Um, Judy Faulkner has been an absolute hero, uh, particularly over the last year and a half, because she made it possible for patients like my patients in clinic to have access to virtual telehealth visits. And that got us through that really tough time. I don't know if Judy knows how much patients appreciate that, but thank you, Judy. And as you know, Judy Faulkner is the founder of the biggest electronic medical record system, uh, I think in the world, but you can correct me on that, Judy. Um, So I just wanted to start by asking you just a few questions. We've only got about 15 minutes. We know you've got an incredibly busy um, agenda today, but appreciate you joining us. So how did you decide to start Epic? What was the instigation for that? Well, um, my Background is undergraduate math, graduate computer science. And when I was in graduate school, I took probably the world's first ever class in computers and medicine. And the person who was teaching it, Dr. Slack, asked me to work with him and his team. And I did. And at some point, they brought me in and said, can you keep track of patient information, whether it's inpatient or outpatient, as it changes over time, all the clinical information. And we want to be able to define our own data elements and design our own screens. And at the time, there were a couple systems available for uh, lab systems. There was a building system, but there wasn't any really clinical system. And things were pretty much hard-coded into either Fortran or COBOL. So... I didn't know it was going to be that hard, so I sat down and wrote the underlying system, which is called Chronicles, and I reassure people that not a line of it is still in use. Anyway, it got used uh, all over the country by uh, eventually, but the way that started was that my own customers at the University of Wisconsin who used it would call me up and say, Judy, start a company. My colleagues want this too. And I would say no. And they would repeat, please start a company. And I keep saying no. And finally, after two years, I gave up and said, okay. And started Epic with, uh, we were one and a half people in a basement. So that was the start. I worry about that half person. But anyway, <laughs> from there. Well, yes, it was so actually that- three one halves. I was paid I half time. Halves. Okay, that's more disturbing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so you and I got to chatting in Healdsburg at this very nice meeting, and um, you were telling me about Cosmos, and I actually had never heard of Cosmos. Can you tell us a little bit more? It seems apropos, considering we just had a discussion about space, but it's really about a different topic. If you can tell us what Cosmos is, that would be great. Cosmos is a great big repository of data, and we have so many patients, so much patient data among our customers that we thought there is so much good value in that information. About half of our customers submit their data to us now with more coming on all the time. And so we have at this moment about 120 million patient records in Cosmos, which is most of the electronic health record data. So it's hundreds of different data elements in there. The only groups that can access it are those who submit data 
and we at EPIC. And so we're doing studies using Cosmos that are, I think, really, really interesting. Um, there's, uh, well, let me back up to the, another use of Cosmos that is very important is called best care for my patient. And best care for my patient means that the physician or clinician taking care of a patient, typically there's only supposed to be about 10% evidence-based medicine available. So the other 90% of the decisions are not made on uh, the basis of evidence. Cosmos has that evidence. So we are feeding it back to the physician so the physician can see if you use drug A, here's results, including not just the results uh, based on the problem, perhaps the problem is hypertension. It will say the average result in hypertension changes if, that, if medicine A is given, but also the cost and what other consequences there may be, such as probability of stroke. And that will all go to the physician so the physician can make a much more um, objective analysis and uh, prescription. Yeah, what I was really impressed by, sorry to interject there, Judy, but the real-time data evaluation I, I, and they, how quickly you can amass data here. I, I'd asked you a question and you got me the answer in 48 hours. I couldn't believe it. It would, something, it would take me 48 months to get that answer. It was specifically how many people in this country have myelofibrosis, how many people have Wernicke encephalopathy, 10,000, 15,000 respectively, how many people have both? Six. Well, that really helps patients already. And this post-marketing analysis is something we can seldom do, even actually in the context of clinical trials, it's hard. So can you tell us more about the dual team system and ehrn.org, two things that I didn't know about until we met? With COVID, we realized that we needed to get information out about what was happening to the COVID patients quickly. We could analyze the data, but if we gave it to New England Journal of Medicine or JAMA or something like that. They would want it to be peer-reviewed and it would take months. And with COVID hitting so rapidly and so drastically, didn't think it could wait months. So we started looking at the data ourselves and we said, we can't get it wrong. So therefore we'll create two teams, team A, team B. Each team has a physician, a, or another clinician, a data scientist, a software developer, and a few other folks. The two teams get the same challenge, and then they separate, don't talk to each other, and both work on the problem with the data. They compare the results, and if their results are the same, then we feel comfortable that we could publish. So that's how we do the two-team two approach. That's why we can get things out fairly quickly. Well, I think that that's an awfully effective, really transformational system. Is this something we should be applying more to our studies in science and medicine as we move forward with these rather large data sets? It seems like yes. a model to me. Yeah, and some of the really nice things we've done, or we've done uh, cancer screenings and what happened to uh, all the cancer screenings that should have been done during COVID that weren't. Um, we... I uh, did a really early study. This is one of the things that got us going with EHRN, which was a study on uh, ventilator use. And one of our customer CEOs, a physician, 
happened to just comment that he couldn't get hold of ventilators and they were putting patients on their side or on their stomachs and he thought that they were surviving more. And we went right to the data and did a study on death rates with the ventilators and published it. And just this week, I was talking to someone in the South who was saying that it was like a light switch changed. The extreme use of ventilators that had been there just stopped abruptly. So I think that that was just an amazing effect that probably came from EHRM. One we just did was opioid use, Mm. which is, um, are people now prescribing opioids appropriately? And what we found was that Indeed, they are being prescribed appropriately for everything but orthopedics. Orthopedics uh, use of too much opioids has decreased, but it's still not where it needs to be. So we're getting a couple of questions in the chat here. Uh, One is one that we all worry about as physicians and scientists, and that is patient privacy. How do you ensure protection? Now that we're getting genomics data, and and you and I have talked about the integration of genomics data in the medical records so patients can actually graph their variantial frequency and you know, I'm meeting with your genomics team about that. But as these genomics data and other pieces of data become more identifiable, how do we assure patient privacy? I don't know the answer to the genomics data. That's Mm -hmm. still to be decided, and it isn't in Cosmos yet. Mm -hmm. But you're right, it should be, and eventually to make the right decisions for the patient, that genomics data is going to be extremely important. Um, We know because we have customers in Singapore, they Mm -hmm. will tell us that some of the medication that's used typically in America with great effectiveness will not work in Singapore. Mm -hmm. And some things that don't work in the U.S. work very well in Singapore because of the different genomic makeup. Mm -hmm. So we know how important it is. Uh, We haven't dealt yet with how we're going to deal with patient privacy once the the genome is in there. We do work with a limited data set Mm -hmm. and you can't get down to the individual. So Mm -hmm. one of the ways we help with privacy is you can only get a group of patients at a time, not an individual. Ah, good to know. So um, I know that you've been in touch with Lalitesh Katragata about making apps for this. Uh, Is there, and I know that's a nascent uh, conversation, but is this an opportunity for patients to get their own data in their own hands? I certainly have the epic app here on my phone so I can get secure messages. Is this something that we can do for patients? Because I've got my little epic app here. Uh, My chart. Yes, (laughs) my chart. I mean, beyond my chart, would they get all their alerts? What do, what can we look forward into the future? Chris Mason was telling us about 500 years, but you know, you move very quickly. So in the next year, what do you see as advances in the EMR, just in technology in general for healthcare? Okay, so for EMR for the patient, not necessarily Cosmos or EHRN. Exactly. Or those things. Oh, gee, um, I think we're going to see continuation of. Uh, telehealth, that has certainly been a biggie. There's going to be more ease of use through voice commands. Um, I would have to ask the folks working on that, those projects, uh, what was in the uh, list for what's coming up next. I know they have a lot, but I don't know anything right now to say, here's a brilliant one that's going to be next. 
question that is um, a little bit unrelated, and that has to do with how did you start a company with no external finances and have a team that is still just incredibly responsive? I know I sound like I'm somehow advertising for Epic, but I have been very impressed with how quickly your team will mobilize. How do you do that sustainably for those of us here who are interested in starting companies or are part of companies? Well, I think, first of all, uh, don't get an MBA. (laughs) Because they may teach you things you have to then say, no, I don't want to do that. (laughs) So don't go with venture capital, at least for us. We didn't go with venture capital because then they would just want to flip it. And you have to decide, is that your goal to flip it or is your goal to grow it? Which one? Um, Don't go public because then you're going to have the tyranny of the quarter. You're going to have to focus on um not your customers but new customers and doing acquisitions and other things like that so we don't uh have budgets Uh, we say if you need it buy it if you don't need it don't buy it and that works very well Uh, we're just able to to do things in a way i think that's different one of the things we do is we have individual offices which in most cases you don't have in companies nowadays, it's cubicles. It's how many people can you put into a room. But people are your greatest expense and your greatest area of productivity. And so here at Epic, we uh, give them individual offices. And we find that when we have boomerangs, people who leave and then come back, the number one thing they say that they missed was productivity, that when they were here, they were able to be more productive. And I think a lot of it is the individual rooms. Um, there's a few other things like no more than three stories high. So that, cause people will walk up and down two flights of stairs, but not three. Now you're in California. That's different than Wisconsin where we can uh, have cornfields and put buildings in. Well, I'm hoping Judy, that there will be some uh, grand challenges and questions we can really take on together through the stem cell field. We've talked about environmental pollutants. Don't uh, drink the water. Don't breathe the air in the song you sent me by Tom Lair. Uh, So we'll look into that. I know the patients are very grateful to you and your team. And we just want to give you a big hearty thank you for that um, for the last more than year and a half. And we're really looking forward to the future of working more with you here in uh, California as we expand the stem cell initiative. Uh, Maria Milan has continued at the helm there for the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. We're all united in that effort. And we'll have a panel of our Alpha Clinic directors coming up after the poster session and after lunch. But thank you so much again uh, for being with us today, Judy. Thank you. Bye.